You're listening to an Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. AGO Talks are recorded live in the gallery and feature artists, writers, and curators exploring how art shapes and inspires us. Please visit us online at agonet slash talks. Good evening and welcome. Is the mic on? Yeah, it is good. My name is Gillian McIntyre and I coordinate the adult public programs here and it's a special delight this evening to be welcoming Simon Stevens from the National Maritime Museum in Greenwich, London. Um, we've had our ship models since we reopened and I think some of us, when we first got the ship models, we wondered what to do with them and now we absolutely love them. Uh, so we're going to hear a lot more about them tonight. Now this evening we were going to have Leslie Lonsdale Cooper, who, as many of you may know, was one of the translators of Hergé's Adventures of Tintin, and unfortunately she couldn't travel due to ill health. However, Simon will be able to carry some of her stories and, and tell us the whole, you know, some of what she would have talked about, hopefully. So Simons is curator of the Ship Model and Boat Collection at the National Maritime Museum London. He curated the Thompson Collection of Ship Models for us at the AGO and co-curated the National Maritime Museum's 2005 Tintin at Sea exhibition. So Simon. Well, first of all, thank you very much for coming tonight and thank you for inviting me. Um, uh, I've had a, a long, happy relationship with this museum and the collection and with many people out in the audience and it's ongoing as well and it just gets better every day I, you know it's it's a wonderful experience coming over here um as Gillian said i work at the national maritime museum 33 years <laughs> with the ship model collection so um it, i'm a bit of an anorak as they say in london as far as models are concerned uh, which is probably why i was approached in the first place to help curate the the ship model collection here at the ago um you are blessed with a wonderful collection of models here. Uh, in my opinion, it's, it's top five in the world. It doesn't get any better than this in terms of the quality and the depth uh, and accuracy of the models. It, it's an amazing collection to have. Um, as I say, I'm responsible for the ship model collection at Greenwich, which is about 3,500 in total. It's thought to be the largest collection in the world. Uh, we're blessed with having a, a wonderful collection of, of mid-17th to uh, late 18th century ship models, uh, the Navy Board and the Georgian star models, which I will dip into later on during the talk, uh, as well as a great set of builders' models, which you have here as well. So the, the, the two um, collections are very comparable in terms of the styles, the methods, the scales, that sort of thing. Um, now, what I'm going to try and do is... There are some amazing coincidences in this story, because uh, the more I've gone into Tintin and ship models, uh, they just keep jumping out at you on the page, and it's, it's incredible. I and mean, I'll try to remember some of them. I won't remember, remember them all, but uh, when... I mean, I, I read Tintin when I was a young boy, a couple of them, um, so it does, it does come back to me. And I had the good fortune of watching the, uh, the film on the plane coming over, which was amazing. <laughs> Last-minute research, as one does, because it hasn't been released in the, uh, in the UK yet. It's, it's still to be released. So um, a bit of feverish note-taking on the plane was, was ensued, uh, which was fine. You know, I'd, I'd read The Secret of the Unicorn anyway, so uh, that, that was fun. And it was, it was good to see the, the film adaptation in terms of the cartoons, the characters. And also we had the pleasure, and Eke and I and Sherry had the pleasure of visiting uh, 
Leslie Longsdale Cooper, who I'll talk about in a minute, one of the co-translators uh, who lives in the UK, Milton Keynes. And I was interested in, in her comments about how she thought the film was, was interpreted as well and the, and the books as well. So it's, it, it's, it's an amazing coincidence that's going on here between the models and, and the, and the storyline and the cartoons. I've highlighted a couple of the models that you have in the collection here which almost fit the storyline perfectly in terms of uh, The Secret of the Unicorn, uh, Red Rackham's Treasure and The Crab with the Golden Claw. There are three classic models here that, that, that feature in those. So I'm going to sort of skip through the story briefly. I mean, I can't recall every detail about Hergé and, and Tintin in the books because I'm by no means an expert on that. I mean, that's really Leslie and Michael's territory. But um, I will do my best to sort of highlight what I know and what I can remember about our discussions and how the models relate. And I'm primarily here to promote the model collection as well. I mean, I've had a big part in putting this collection on the map, which I thoroughly enjoyed. We've published a catalogue about it. And your colleagues here tell me that, you know, that the, the, the interest in the gallery is, is really building up to a fever pitch now, which is fantastic news, um, because a, a model collection to an art gallery was a bit of a, a non-starter in some respects. So it was, a, it was a learning curve to sort of say, you know, this is what you've got here, and the potential is, is fantastic. It really is. Anyway... Enough of the, uh, the waffling. Um, the, I, I thought I'd briefly start by explaining a few of the, uh, you know, the background to uh, Ken Thompson. Um, he started collecting models over 20 years ago. And through uh, one of his companies acquiring a publishing company, he then met uh, Michael Turner, who was a chairman of one of the publishing companies, who himself was a keen uh, model maker and, and collector as well. And unbeknown to Ken at the time, he was also... Uh, the co-translator of the Tintin books, together with... Hold on, let's just... There's Ken, sorry. Um, uh, he was also the co-translator with Leslie Longsdale Cooper. Now, this is Michael Turner. Funny enough, when, when I was at the museum, before I'd even met Ken Thompson, I knew about the collection, because some of the models uh, required an export licence when they were purchased from the UK collections and sent abroad, and and the export licence would go across my desk for permission to go out or we stand up and fight for it. So some of these models are old friends in some respects. And in the early 1980s, I think, Michael came and visited me when he was actually cataloguing uh, the ship model collection for Ken uh, and came and met me in the office and we chatted about the, the collection. So in some respects, and again, an amazing coincidence for me, and it's one of many, uh, that I met Michael Thompson as a friend and a fellow model enthusiast and collector. This is Michael and Leslie Longsdale Cooper on the right. Um, she's an, a fascinating lady. We spent a day with her um, three weeks ago up at Milton Keynes, north of London in, uh, in the UK, where we were asking her about her involvement with Tintin, how she, got in, how she knew Michael. She was uh, um, working in the same company as, as Michael Turner, Methuen, the publishing company. Michael's in marketing and um, uh, Leslie was a, a general editor, and they both had a, a love of the English language, and Leslie um, was fluent in French as well. During the war, she worked as a, um, a, as a typing assistant and was taken up by the American Army. And after the war, she found herself taking notes at the Nuremberg Trials, which is incredible, absolutely incredible. So, I mean, there's a story to be told there about Leslie uh, Longsdale Cooper, and basically, her 
um, brief on this was the, the language side of things, and it was they, they would come up with the, the English translations from French, uh, and Michael was key to making the word, or the wordage, fit into the balloons in the artwork, because obviously having to change the artwork would, would cost money and time and would, would, would change the, out, the, the, the outlook of the artwork itself. So it's quite an interesting relationship between these two. They did it in their own time. They weren't paid for it. Uh, and it was a 50-year project that went on, you know, translating all the books. I mean, it was an absolute labour of love, and you can tell that from just talking to Leslie. It was an amazing experience. At this time, I never knew when I, when I met Michael that he was a, an expert on Tintin. It just never came up in conversation for some reason, which I find amazing. And this is Leslie when we went and tapped on her door three weeks ago up in Milton Keynes. She's 82, am I right? 87, oh, sorry. Um, and she still gets around. She's as sharp as a button. She's got a wonderful memory. Uh, and she thoroughly enjoyed our visit. And we had a wonderful time. I mean, we could have spent much, much longer there. But because of her age, she was, you know, getting a bit tired. And we thought, we, you know, we didn't want to sort of push it too much. But uh, she gave us a wonderful insight into, you know, the, the background to Tintin and, and her part in it, the arguments, the discussions that went on about certain words, that sort of thing. And then this is Hergé himself, um, who, was, who started life as a strip cartoonist for a, 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 a newspaper. Uh, this was taken in the 1950s at a market. Now, Hergé was... He, 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 his first two publications, um, he, he drew uh, without too much uh, reference material, and he got a few things wrong, and as such was slated by it. So uh, from that day on, he vowed that he would do his research fully, and he was absolutely meticulous in his research. And as such, he would contact institutions all over the world, including the National Maritime Museum in the 60s, funny enough. I wasn't there at that time. But, um, and obviously, the, the, the one that's caused the interest and the stir is the, the secret of the unicorn, which is about a ship model that reveals a secret within. So briefly, the story of the secret of the unicorn is Tintin, which is there, and his trusty dog, Snowy. They were in a flea market. And he saw this ship model being sold. And he thought, oh, I quite fancy that. I'll buy that. So he, he, he um, made the guy an offer. And pretty much as soon as he, he bought the model, there was a queue of people after him trying to buy the model. And he was having none of this. He said, no, I want to take this home and show my, my friend and colleague, Captain Haddock, uh, that this wonderful ship model. And he was absolutely pursued by these various people, offering him money, lots of money, to say, look, I'd really like to buy your ship model. Uh, and, of course, you know, uh, Tintin, being a reporter, thought, there's something going on here. This, this needs looking into. So he, he went back to his flat. Um, he put the model on the table. Uh, and, sadly, Snowy, his trusty dog, was on, on the table at the time, and he knocked the model off onto the floor. And you can imagine a rig model like that falling onto the floor from a great height uh, just smashed. All the rigging just fell. Uh, the mast came out. And unbeknown to Tintin, but uh, Snowy realised this, a little note had popped out inside of the hull. There's another interesting story about notes, which I'll tell you about later. So Tintin um, obviously thought, oh, well, I'll have to get it repaired. And he went out to go and um, speak to his good friend, Captain Haddock, here on, on the left. And he, said, I, and he showed him the model of the, of, the, of, the, of the unicorn. And Captain Haddock said, that's incredible. Right, you need to come and look at this painting of my, my ancestor, um, Francis Haddock, Sir Francis Haddock. So he went away and showed him this, this, this painting, um, 
which, as it turns out, we have the original of in the National Maritime Museum. Another coincidence. I was just going through the collection. I thought, I know, I'll Google Admiral Captain Haggart 1680s. And blow me down, we've got an oil painting in our collection. Talk about under your nose. So that's the original um, Captain Haddock that Hergé based his um, uh, ancestor, or Haddock's ancestor on. Now, um, in terms of the models that relate closely to the unicorn in the film and the book, you've got this amazing model in the collection of a third-rate, two-decker third-rate uh, of about 1692. Now, if I sort of step back a bit and, and talk technical here, in the British Navy, uh, the warships were rated by size and number of guns. So a first-rate ship would be 100 guns, a second-rate ship would be 90 to 80 guns, and then the third-rate, which was pretty much the backbone of the Navy at the time, was a two-decked, 74-gun ship. Okay? Now, as you can see, it's three-masted with a Latin yard on the mizzen, Mizzen mast, main mast, foremast, and you've got this bow sprit uh, projecting over the bow with a sprit topmast here. This was primarily for um, controlling the ship when you were turning the ship through the wind, as was the, the fore and aft mizzen sail. All the other sails on the rig are square and mounted athwart ships of the sh uh, or across the ship itself. And you can see the resemblance to the model you have in the collection and the illustration of, of the unicorn. You've got the bowsprit here with the sprit topmost there, the, the square sails, and you've got the latine there. And that's the cover down there on the right, uh, right bottom right-hand corner. Now, obviously, Hergé used a lot of reference material to construct his drawings from, uh, his cartoons from. Uh, and this is an early drawing here of... Um, he used a combination of French warships as well as British and to, to get a, a feel of the hull shape and especially the rig because he didn't want to be pulled up on any inaccuracies. So you can see here the bowsprit with the, the sprit top, topmast and topsail here. And you can see that Latin sail there on the mizzenmast. That would disappear in the 18th century and then became the standard uh, gaff rig sail. But all the other sails were fore and aft uh, athwart ships. Notice also he's even included the circular fighting tops. I mean, he, he was absolutely meticulous in his detail. You've got the shrouds here with the rat lines that support the, the, the mast uh, from the cyber motions, and then you've got the stays here which support the mast fore and aft. Detail of the anchor with the cat head here, the cat and the anchor catted. And this is the stern of the Brilliant, which was another uh, uh, warship at the time, 17th century, French, uh, and you can see the similarities, the three stern lanterns, the shape of the stern here with the quarter galleries. I'll show the quarter galleries later. The planking coming up to the stern. And that's another illustration of the French uh, first-rate ship, the Soli Royale, which, when you look at the illustrations in the, in the, in the uh, uh, Secret of the Unicorn, uh, are almost identical in terms of colour. Now, you compare that against your model of the third-rate uh, in the collection. You can see here the quarter galleries, the two rows of stern galleries here, the circular stern lanterns. Now these were used primarily when they were in convoy at sea for keeping an eye on your colleagues and also for sending signals. If you had certain lights, um, a light at the time when there'd be one up in the mast, you could actually send signals or you could send signals by firing guns as well. That was another form of communication between a fleet at sea. But you've got this incredibly rich 
carved detail here, typical of the period of the late 17th century, of William and Mary's period, Queen Anne. Notice also you've got these amazing gun ports surrounded by these carved wreaths. Now, as you can imagine, ships um, of this quality and, and, and magnitude and decoration will cost an awful lot of money to maintain by the Navy. And subsequently, in the early 18th century, an order was sent out saying we need to reduce the decoration on our ships on the grounds of cost and maintenance. This was all carved in wood and either painted in gold or, in some cases, in gold leaf. You can see the guns run out here with the gun port lids raids, and then you've got the bulwark screens here and the shrouds there. This is a... a and, then, and there's the comparison there with the, uh, the actual drawing in the book. You've got the stern lanterns there, that rather square-shaped stern with the quarter gallery. It's very, very French. It's more French than British. Uh, ours were slightly more rounded, rather like the Dutch um, sterns as well. And the colour scheme as well, you've got the blues coming in, which we, we didn't really uh, have mu that much colour on our warships, whereas the French did. There's the quarter gallery of the Brilliant as well. Different shape to the British quarter galleries. And they didn't have so much of the wreathed gun ports as well. Now, this is a, what we call a Navy Board style of model, in that the, uh, the executive that ran the Navy in the 17th and the 18th century, they were called the Navy Board, and they would send out an order to the shipyard. We had six shipyards, Royal Ship Dockyards, uh, and they were um, run by the master shipwright. And they would send an order out saying, right, we would like your best design for a two-decker 70-gun ship. Please submit your drawings and ideas. And in some cases, models were constructed either before, during, or after uh, the construction of the warship. And in this case, um, you had these lovely elaborate models, which were probably commissioned after and owned by a, a, a wealthy individual who had a connection with the Navy or, or the ship itself, who actually served on the ship. And you would find these on display in their, in their big houses or mansions. Now, we say the na Navy Board style, probably the most striking feature about this style of model are these open frames underneath the waterline. This would normally be planked when it was at sea. And it's a stylized framing. It's not how the frames were actually framed. It's, it's, a, it's an unequal uh, framing of, 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 to show the style of framing. And the reason behind this, we think, is that when you look from the bow or the stern, because you've got some very complicated curves going on here, uh, coming up, out, and in, um, you look along the line of the hull, you get this very dark uh, shadow of the, of the gaps and the light, uh, lightness of the wood in stark contrast, and it gives you a much better idea of the shape than a fully planked hull wood, uh, hull wood in, 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 in just wooden planking. And we've come to call these the, the Navy Board style, heavily decorated with wreathed gun ports and in some cases fully rigged. The interesting thing about your model in the collection is it's actually marked with a white line, which indicates the water line. So that's how far the hull would float. Uh, in the, that shows the draft of the vessel here. So when you're in the, in the, in the gallery, have a look at, um, uh, to see that. There's a lovely close-up there of, of, the, of, the, of the bow, the, 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 the forecastle bulkhead, the, or the forecastle, and that comes from the term where, in the medieval period, a ship was built with a forward castle and an after castle, pretty much wooden castellations on a hull. They did away with the after castle and kept the forward castle, and then it then became uh, the forecastle or forecastle, as you might know it. Now, the other interesting thing about your model here, and also the Edinburgh, which is in the gallery, is it's complete with a lion figurehead, and you've actually got a full-size example on display in the gallery. 
And the reason behind that was to show, uh, to give some idea of scale. This is a very difficult concept to grasp for most people, is to get an idea of the scale of these ships. So you've got a full-size figurehead alongside the actual model. So that gives you an idea uh, uh, in terms of the scale of the model. Another a way of determining the scale is by looking along the, the actual bulkheads here on the quarter gallery and the, uh, the, uh, the, the poop deck and the quarter gallery bulkheads and looking at a doorway. And you'll find this on all ships. Most ships will have a doorway of some sort and that's probably the easiest way of actually trying to work out what a figure would look like on, on a ship model. Because I'm always asked about, you know, how, how big is this ship in real life? Now, these were built at a, a quarter-inch to the foot scale, so every quarter-inch on that model represents a foot in real life. Um, and they were drawn at the, uh, made at the same scale the drawings were made up at as well. They were made from fruitwood, apple, pear, boxwood, English slow-growing hardwoods. You'll notice there's no grain showing in these woods. If you use something like oak or pine, it would, de it would destroy the, the scale of things, the miniaturisation. There's the circular gun tops, I was to, uh, fighting tops I was talking to you about. They're actually on the model as well. In the 18th century, they, was, they became square. So again, it's a good dating purpose for, for looking at these, these models. That's the waist of the ship, it's known, as it's known. That's the capstan, uh, and you would fit wooden capstan bars into that, uh, and that's how you would, you would actually winch up the anchor cable and the anchor. And you can see a, a full set of guns in the waist here. That little carved piece there is the belfry, which is where the ship's bell was mounted. And again, that was a way of sounding orders on deck, muster stations, that sort of thing. So it was, again, it was a communication device. If you were fog-bound, you would ring the bell as well. Incredibly detailed, beautifully decorated. You'll notice also that the planking is missing from the deck. That was a style that was, uh, we think was used to throw light into the model. And you could actually have a, a candle on a very highly polished mirror on one side and look through the gun ports on the other, and you could actually see the interior decoration. Some of these models are incredibly detailed inside. We've been inside with endoscopes, CT scanners, and there's detail in there that you wouldn't see with the human eye. So they, they left a lot of the planking off just to throw light into the model. These, these models were primarily built to show the layout of the guns, the shape of the hull, and the decoration, the design of the decoration. Very important political statement at the time in the 17th century. And in some cases, they rigged them as well. There's a lovely detail there of the guns turned in brass on wooden carriages. The, the actual rope work, <coughs> excuse me, the actual rope work that's used to run the gun out and run it back in to reload it actually isn't on this model, but some models do include that. But apart from that, it's still a very good model. I mean, crikey, it's, it's, an, it's an amazing model. You'll notice these gratings here on the, on, the, on the deck. They're used to give light down into the hold, into the lower decks, and also ventilation. There was a serious problem in the 17th and the 18th century Navy of ventilating ships in terms of foul air and water getting in and slopping about in the bilges. So then we, that was the secret of the unicorn. So that model re relates very closely to the unicorn itself. Then we come to Red Rackham's treasure. So this was the sort of the sequel to the, to the story of Tinting with his friend Captain Haddock going and finding the unicorn, which was sunk in action eventually with treasure on board. And he um, goes in search of, of the wreck. And he hires, um, with, his, with his friend Captain Haddock, a, a trawler called the Sirius. Um, 
that, uh, the name is fictional, and it was based upon the first steamer that crossed the Atlantic in the 1830s. Hergé gave it that name for that reason. And this is a lovely photograph here of Hergé with a model that he had made of the, the, uh, the trawler that he used for his cartoon work. Now, something I've noticed when I've looked at the artwork and the models is that in, in terms of the, uh, the secret of the unicorn, there are only a certain amount of um, views of the, of the ship. As you come into uh, Red Rackman's treasure and Crab with the Golden Claw, because he had models made, you've got much more better images in terms of perspective. I mean, there are some shots that you'll see later on where you know, he had to have taken that from a, for a, from a plane or from a submarine to get the idea of, of, the, of the shape and size of the model. That's a nice colour photograph there of, of, the, of the trawler. This was based upon a Belgian trawler uh, called the, the John, uh, which was based, uh, well, was registered in Ostend, built in 1936. And it's a typical what they call a sidewinder or uh, um, side trawler, where the, 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 the nets were operated from these gallows here, either side. You've got a set there from the stern and also from the bow. Now, you'll notice that the, the, figure, uh, figure, the, the funnel is behind the, the bridge assembly here with its rounded um, protection here. You've got a mast. You've got a large winch here for operating the, the towing warps. And there's obviously a lifeboat astern as well. Single propeller. And they were built in steel, um, either riveted or, or welded. And these would actually be long-distance trawlers. They would actually go right up to Iceland, uh, into the North Atlantic as well, and they could actually catch large quantities of fish when the fish were still there, of course, <coughs> freeze them down and bring them back to port. Now, the model that relates closely to the, the Sirius in the collection is this wonderful model, builder's model, of the um, British trawler, the Lamamur, which was built in the 1950s. Uh, again, you can see the port registration here, H, which stands for Hull, which is an English port, and her registration number is 105. Fully steel hull. Uh, you can see the draft marks here. Um, you've got that rounded bridge here with the funnel aft. You've got the mast, this large winch assembly here for running the, 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 the warps and the nets. And you've got these gallows here, just above the forecastle, and again here by the, the, the uh, stern accommodation. There's another shot of the model, and that's an actual photograph of the, 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 the trawler that Hergé used to base his drawings on. There you are. There's its registration number, Ostend, and number 88, the John. These were diesel trawlers and, and, and uh, steam trawlers that operated um, since the turn of the century. Now, as I said earlier, Hergé was absolutely um, a stickler for detail, and he actually went out and sketched... Uh, the views himself, together with another colleague, um, a chap called um, Bob Moore, an artist, and they would go on board uh, sketching these uh, views for the, for, the, for the forthcoming books. And he would also send him around the world. Um, you know, he came to England, to Scotland, sketching there as well. Here's a lovely sketch here of, of, of the on-board. Look, so looking down the deck here, and you can see that he's got all the stanchion supports here, the pipework above, lighting, doorways, portholes, grab rails when you're going along here. Because bearing in mind, this is a trawler, so that it's got a very curved shear to ride the rough seas and the waves. Plank deck, and then you can see as, as it's going towards the bow, you've got the shear rising. And this is just a sketch. I mean, this is one of many, many sketches in the Hergé archive that one can look at uh, and refer to. 
And there's the actual uh, illustration in his book of the series. So you can see here the detail, uh, you know, from my point of view in terms of, of, of including uh, specific detail is incredible. You've got this um, reinforced area here on the hull for handling the, the, the warps and net nets as they were hoisted up here so it didn't damage the hull or damage the net as well. That was important. If you damage the net, you lose your catch. You've got this lovely rounded uh, bridge work here, which again was protection in bad weather. You could actually stand on the bridge and operate the, uh, the, the foredeck here. These large winches for operating the warps. There's the, the gallows here and here, either side of the mast and at the stern, and the shape of the hull. And again, you've got this reinforcement along the hull there. And this shows the, the Sirius alongside the key in, in the docks. Now, easy. Um, as I said before, the more I look at the, the artwork, I think the more these models played such an important part. To get that perspective, uh, to, to sketch that uh, illustration, you would either have to be in a small boat just about to be run over by this thing, or from a submarine. So clearly he used the model to get this, the shape of the bow, which is absolutely perfect in terms of the, the rise of the, of the stem and the curve of the shear here going on, and, and the way it just peters out and curves around at the stern here, and, and the perspective of the bridge and the mast, absolutely perfect. And when you compare that against the model, you can see that, that the models were crucial in this area. This is a, a builder's model that you have in the collection, as I said before. The story of builder's models, and you've got a nice collection of builder's models. During the late 19th and early 20th century, um, both the ship owners and ship builders were building models to display at these big international trade fairs that were held around the world, New York, Paris, London, to name a few. And they would each have their trade stand. And on that, they would have illustrations or paintings of the ships that they either built or operated. And they were also festooned with models, either full hull models or half-block models as well, of which you have some in the collection. Generally, they were built, again, to the same standard and, and scale of 1 to 48, quarter inch to the foot. Um, Full hull models, the, they tended to have certain features. I'll just skip back a minute, sorry. Uh, the, the, a lot, you'll notice on the, the, the trawler model that some of the, the metal fittings are silver-plated. Other models are gold-plated. This was a feature that the builder's style really capitalised on, and it, it was there to attract people onto the stand, to catch the eye of the pr prospective buyer if you wanted to order a ship from a shipbuilder or actually operate or place an order with a ship owner. They were built uh, uh, largely of wooden planks in, in horizontal sections, in what we call a bread and, butter, bread and butter construction, glued together and then carved. And then the larger models, because of the sheer weight, were then gouged out internally to reduce the weight. But they would leave bulkheads every so often to give them sort of longitude st stability. Again, here's the detail I was talking to you about in the, in the cartoons. You see all this reinforcement here and the, and the, the, the rubbing strakes along the hull here? There's the gallows for, the, for the lifting the trawl up. This is the submarine that um, Tintin used. There's Professor Calculus there, who was, who was as deaf as a post. I mean, when you read these stories, it's hilarious. You know, they're having this conversation with this professor who, who just doesn't get what they're saying, and, and it, it's, it really is it's quite funny to read. I found it hilarious. Uh, and in the end, at the end of the conversation, he just about, he just comes out with what they were trying to get at, uh, incredibly. And there's the stern uh, view of, of the model. You can see, as I was saying, that reinforcement here, the gallows here. Because they would either tow the, 
the, the warp and the nets astern from, from the stern position, or they, had, they could actually tow it from the forward position as well, depending upon the sea conditions and the current and where the fish were, were at the time. And look at this here, look. Look at the perspective there. You can only, you're only going to get that from a model. And, uh, you know, you, you're not going to get that from an aeroplane or a photograph. <laughs> uh, so it clearly, the, the models really do play a, 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 an important part in the artwork for, the, for these fantastic books. There's a great shot there, of, you know, from the bridge looking along the deck. Now, that's the sort of view I get when I'm on board a ship with a CT, uh, with an endoscope. You can actually go along the deck with a flexible endoscope and a camera as if you're walking along the deck of a 17th or 18th century warship. And the same would be said for a builder's model. If you look along the deck, you can get the, the absolute curve of the deck planking, the shape of the superstructure, and, and you know, the foreshortening of, of, the, of the actual accommodation. Another shot there of them on the bridge looking, for, looking aft, because you've got the wake of the ship here, you see. Every detail, every detail. And, and this is a, a nice shot here of the, of the bridge assembly of the trawler with the funnel. There's that large winch I was telling you about. This is the size of winch that you needed to operate a fishing net. Bearing in mind you've got a heavy warp, either rope or wire. You've got the weight of the net itself, which was, when wet was very heavy. Uh, and then you've got the catch, hopefully, as well. So it needed a, quite a sizable uh, winch. Which, and these were sort of um, steam-powered as well. You'll notice also these wooden pens, these shuttering. There we are. This is where the catch was actually brought on board and then sorted. And then in the middle here, you've got the hatches, where they would actually put the you know, cod, haddock, uh, that sort of thing down, the various hatches. And then there'd be a, the crew below fast, uh, packaging the, uh, and icing the, the fish into their, into their compartments and then storing them down below. But that allowed to, you know, to sort two catches. You could even have two trawls either side, one on that side, one on the other side. And you could bring them in at different times, so you could actually be sorting two catches at the same time. And these pens were all removable. They were all compartmentized. You've got the, the pr protected area here of the forecastle, which is where the crew lived and operated from. And that's the anchor uh, winch, the windlass. That, that operated the, the anchor and the cable. An interesting point, when I was talking to the volunteers last night, that a lot of people think it's the anchor that holds the ship when it's at anchor. It's not the anchor. It's the weight of the cable. And when it grounds on the seabed, and it's the friction that holds that cable. The only reason the anchor is there is to stop the cable from dragging along the, the seabed. As I say, he was meticulous in his research, and he referred to all these different reference books. You know, this was a, a, a book about the you know, models and ships at sea, and he even included it in one of his cartoons. He had these little jokes with uh, certain people and, and items. Here's another drawing here of, of, of a sambuk, or what we would call an Arab dhow, which appeared in the uh, Red Sea. Um, Red Sea, Red Sea, Red Sea. Um, I've forgotten the title. Um, Red Sea Sharks, I think, yeah. Um, and, and it's a lovely drawing here of a, of a typical Arab dhow with this raking stem post here, these amazing, massive lateen rigs, fore and aft, not across the ships, very, very powerful rig, easy to work, and very, very fast. And these were used in the, uh, off the coast of Africa and Asia for, uh, for pirating as well as running slaves as well. We've got a number of these in our collection. And there it is in the, in the actual book. You can, you can see the Latin rig here on the sails and the, and the curved 
stem of the, of, of the bow. And that's a model that we have at Greenwich of, a, of a, an Arab Dow or, or a Sambu. They've got various names depending upon where you come from and the region that they operate in. See how you've got that very, very steep stone. Two masted with a, these Latin cells that we just dropped down. Plank on frame hull with a large rudder. One thing I, I mentioned last night was that when you, when you sail a ship, you actually sail it using the rig. A lot of people think you, you sail it using the rudder, which to a certain extent is true, but every time you put helm on the rudder, you're, it's acting like a brake. So a good sailor will actually sail a ship using the rig. He'll tweak the yards around and get the best he can from the, from the, uh, the, the rig, and then he will then use the rudder for very, very fine adjustments. Now, obviously, in some cases, the wind is, is blowing... Uh, against the direction you wish to travel. So you would set your rig at the, at the optimum level and then you, that's where you would have to use your, your helm and your rudder. And then this is the, uh, another uh, illustration of a, of a steamer called the Ramona. Now notice also, again, the shape of the hull, uh, the, 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 the ventilation shafts here, which double up as derrick for the cargo handling and the mast and the funnel. And again, you've got a wonderful example here of a builder's model. Of a, of a, that represents a number of ships that were named um, uh, of the R-Class, the Rodsley, Rawdsley, Reevely, built just before the Second World War, 1939-38. And you can see here, you've got the masts, uh, the platforms of the masts here, the derricks here, and you've got these tall ventilation uh, stanchions which doubled up to operate the derricks over the cargo hatches here. So they could actually come alongside in a... In a, in a in a port or a quayside, and they would crane the cargo aboard down into the cargo hatches, or they could offload from um, lighteners or lighters alongside the ship uh, and crane them up that way if there wasn't a port that, uh, that they, they could actually come alongside. Because, I mean, some of these ships would do what they call tramping. They would go from port to port around the world, collecting a variety of cargoes, dropping them off and picking them up. So not every port they visited had a full uh, facility of keys and cranes. So they had to have this... this um, variation in rig and, and equipment on deck to deal with that. Again, 1 to 48 scale. In this case, you'll notice when you see the model in the flesh that a lot of the fixtures and fittings are gold-plated. Again, this is the style of, of builder's model that was, that was used during this period, uh, right the way through the ninth, uh, late 19th and early 20th century, just to attract the eye. Um, after the Second World War, as the ships themselves become so much bigger, the scale of the models were brought down from 1 to 48 to 1 to 96. It was a much more smaller and manageable scale. Uh, a quarter-inch to the foot scale model of a supertanker would just be too big, unmanageable, would cost too much. And to be frank, you wouldn't get it in the boardroom, for want of a better word. So it, you know, there, were, there were many reasons for, for scaling them down and the cost. Part of ordering a ship included, in some cases, having a scale model as well for the owner and the shipyard. So you would often go into the shipyards to the boardrooms and you see this wonderful collection of models on display of, of the sort of things that they would build. This is the stern of the, of the, of the Rodsley and it was an armed merchant ship during the war so that it, would, it would be armed against aircraft attack and also the larger gun if it, if it had the chance to, to take a shot at a, a U-boat that would surface that was trying to sort of sink it with a torpedo. In most cases the ships came off worse unfortunately. But you can see the sort of detail that are in these models. When you start getting 
close. Now, you I mentioned earlier about doorways on models. You're getting these all the time on these models. So that gives you an idea of the scale um, of the models themselves in, in relation to the human figure. You've got these rather lovely um, brass uh, ventilation cowlings on deck. These were used to give uh, vent down air into the cargo hold space, the engine room, and also the accommodation. At this time, a lot of the detail was inked on to the actual wooden deck and the hatches and then varnished over. In, um, earlier on, they would actually make these hatches up from individual pieces of wood or planking. And then, of course, he used photographs. I mean, there were obviously, uh, you know, an amazing amount of photographs available. The Glengarry, um, uh, again, this was a, a used for... Uh, reference material for another steamship in another book as well. And this shows a quayside scene with the Glengarry of, of Glasgow. Again, you've got these vertical masts here with that cross-section platform here which would support the, the blocks that would work the Davies. And you've got that on the, on, the, on the Rodsley model as well. Shape of the stern is identical to the Rodsley as well. And again, even photographs of lifeboats where he needed to include them in, is part of the story. This is the reference material that he used. A typical ship's lifeboat, double-ended, with these grab rails around the side. They were used to, um, if someone was in the water, they could pull themselves on board, or if, the, in some cases, the lifeboat was fully laden, they would just hang on in, in the water. This is a great image. I, I just came across this by chance when I was reading it. The Maritime Gallery. Um, at the end of the story of, of, uh, of, of Red Rackham's treasure... They found the treasure, uh, and um, Captain Haddock here inherited a fortune. As a result, he then purchased back his old family home, which was Marlin Spike Hall. Marlin Spike, another maritime term, Marlin Spike, which is like a, a wooden or a metal pin that we'd use on board a sailing ship to make a, a rope fast on, a running rope. Now, Leslie uh, Longsdale Cooper, um, she was brought up in a, a naval school, so she actually she had a good um, knowledge of naval vocabulary, and she remembers Marlin Spike uh, from her childhood, and she came up with the name of Marlin Spike Hall. <laughs> Hence, and this is this is this is quite funny. A maritime gallery. Here we are in a uh, in a museum, with a maritime gallery, a collection from a maritime museum. Another coincidence, and look here's the ship models on display. There were three models in the story. I should have told you this in the unicorn. There were three models in the uh, Secret of the Unicorn, each of which had a note inside. And when you matched up the three notes through a light, they all actually made, uh, they gave away the location of the treasure, whereas the, the note on its own didn't mean a thing. It was, it was uh, incomplete. Hence, these people were chasing uh, Tintin to get the third model, to get the third note, so that they could find out where the treasure was. So I thought that was a lovely little um, piece there for the, for the Maritime Gallery and Captain Haddock. Uh, it's a bit of a change from a, the uniform. He's, he's got a dicky bow tie and everything, well shaven. The, the other thing is that um, uh, is, 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 is the comments he would come out with um, um, blistering barnacles, uh, you know, in the first instance. Then you read on a bit and then it would go, billions of blistering barnacles. And then he would up it another scale and say, billions and billions of blistering barnacles. And, and it just gets worse and worse. And, uh, and, you, and you can imagine the fun that Leslie and Michael must have had in, first of all, trying to translate this from the French into English and then getting the, the sense uh, of, of the wording into the English language, but at the same time making it fit these bubbles as well. 
it must have been a, a tre tremendous job. And you can imagine the discussions and the arguments that went on. And we looked at the, the, the archive that Leslie still has, and she's still got the typed lists of words that they were coming up with and ideas to replace some of the French translation. And some of them are hilarious. I mean, they had a wonderful sense of humour. And that's just a detail there of, of the gallery, just to highlight the models. There's a huge, great anchor here as well. I mean, you know, I mean, you know, the, the health and safety people of now would, would have a field day if this was a maritime gallery. I know I would. And there's another lovely little uh, image in the uh, Secret of the Unicorn where someone's dropped the model. Uh, and, and funny enough, I thought straight away of, of Sherry, the conservator here, in terms of thinking, oh dear, another job for Sherry to sort out, you know, of trying to reassemble that. But uh, it just magically gets repaired. It's just incredible. Another interesting thing aside was that um, the original Captain Haddock himself, when he was um, uh, in the Battle of Sol Bay, he was on the Royal James, which was, was lost. He survived the wreck and was pulled out. And um, as a result, he, he worked for King Charles, the second the king. And King Charles gave him his hat. So that's how the, whoops, that's how the hat with the feather appears in, in the story as well. And an incredible tale. And then, of course, you've got the, the figurehead as well. Um, Hergé based the, the, the underwater wreck on, on the Vasa, which was recovered in the 1960s in Sweden, which you can now go and see. It's a pretty much complete uh, Swedish warship with two decks. Uh, and there are references in the artwork there to the Vasa as well uh, and, the, um, and the figurehead. So that's my take on, on Hergé ship models, uh, the collection at the AGO. Um, I've got one other very quick story I'd like to tell you, which is breaking news. Um, this is a model in the collection at Greenwich called the Bologna, launched in 1760. And I had to give a presentation for our directors about six weeks ago. Um, there was a big meeting of financial directors at the museum, from all the museums. And they said, oh, Simon, Simon, can you do one of your endoscope sessions? People love it. I said, yep, no problem. So I went to the gallery, pulled out the Bologna model, got the endoscope out, and I... And I then had a phone call to say that they were delayed by an hour. I thought, oh, well, that will give me a chance to play with the endoscope and the model, which I don't often get a chance to do. So I went inside the model, and, I, and I, I vaguely remember some time ago when I was in the model, many years ago, that I thought I saw a note as I was coming out from the model when I was exploring it. So I thought, well, this is, this is my chance to actually try and find this note. And it took me about 10 minutes, but lo and behold, I found a note. Now, this might not sound that fascinating, but I've waited 22 years to find a note in a model in the Greenwich collection. I found notes in other people's models, in institutions and private collections, and I thought there's got to be a note in one of the models at Greenwich. There's got to be. It just doesn't work. So if you wait long enough, it comes around. Um, the fascinating thing is, I mean, I haven't got a photograph of it. I couldn't photograph it at the time, was that the model in your collection here of the Bristol, which was built by George Stockhall, and we know that because there was a note found inside that, which I helped find, and that's on a facsimile of that is on display. This note here is, is, is glued on the underside of the deck beam on the gun deck, and it gives two names, which are completely new to us, uh, where it was made, Chatham Dockyard, where the ship was made, and the date, 1759. So we know for a fact that this model was made before 1759, a year before the ship was launched. Now, the interesting thing here is that this model was then finished and upgraded to show the king about the copper sheathing of the fleet in the 1770s, 1780s. Uh, the reason the fleet were coppered was to stop weed growth when the ship was at sea, which would slow it down, or to stop 
the marine boring mollusk, um, Teredo navalis, from boring into the wood and damaging the timber. And by putting copper in salt water, you get a, a chemical reaction which causes a toxin, which doesn't allow the weed or the mollusk to stick to the hull. It was an amazing breakthrough for the British Navy. It, it, managed, it, uh, it stopped the, the rot and the weed growth, and it meant that they didn't have to keep dry docking the ships to scrape their bottoms, which meant they were at sea for longer, they lasted longer, and it gave them a much greater sphere of, of operation. So this model was prepared and showed to George III. So uh, the interesting thing is that when I get back to Greenwich, I'm going to go and delve into the National Archives and find out who these two guys are, because we, we will actually find the muster books or the registers for Chatham Dockyard. We'll know where they worked, how long they worked there for, how much they were paid, when they started, when they finished, who they worked under, that sort of thing. It's the same story that we did with George Stockwell with the Bristol and another model, the, the Leopard, which is written up in the, in the ship model book. So that, that was a very exciting discovery. The other thing that we're doing now with um, ship models is, is that we're putting, from, putting them through a medical CT scanner. We've x-rayed models in the past, which is fascinating in itself, and you get a lot of information, but it's all confusing because it's all compressed onto uh, two dimension. The great thing about 3D uh, CT scanning is it's digital, so you can do slices through, and you can reconstruct it in a three-dimensional form, and you can spin it round, and you can do fly-throughs as well, apparently. And you can also overlay a grid and take the lines off of the model as well. So if there isn't a plan that exists of this model, we can take the lines off, which is very exciting, because obviously we do have a wonderful plans collection, but not every ship uh, is, is in that plans collection, or the model has the plans. So that, that's my bit of hot news at the moment. Um, we're working in partnership with the AGO, uh, another collection at Annapolis in the United States in terms of CT scanning. And we're actually, as a group, because the models are compatible, we're moving forward in terms of research, uh, which is a very exciting area. Um, we're hoping to produce moving images, because um, it's a great interpretive tool. Well, we're certainly at Greenwich, we're going to try and put a screen up in the new gallery where you can actually go through and, and look at the fly-through inside the model. It's, it's like diving on the wreck of the Titanic when you go inside these models. No one has been inside that model since 1759 until I stuck an endoscope inside there. Uh, the problem you have is that there are only certain models that you can go inside. Some of them are completely sealed, and that's where the CT scan comes in. Because now I've scanned that, and I know what, hopefully, what a note will throw up on a CT scan. We can then CT scan other models and see if there's a note inside. So it's very exciting stuff, but it's, it's very time-consuming. So that, that's all I have to say on, on, the, on the model collection Hergé. Um, if there's any questions, I'm more than happy to, to answer them. Uh, be it about ship models here or at Grange or wherever, I don't mind. So please feel free. If I can just say we have microphones because we're recording this to, to podcast from the website. So it's very good to record the question as well. Sorry, I've, oh, right. Oh, sorry, I thought you had a question. Do you want to bring the house lights up? Sorry, yeah. Harry? Thank you. Okay, that's one here. I just want to ask you why the lighting is so dim in there, because I know that there must be some something yeah. to do with the models, it, but yeah, some of it, even the plaques, you can hardly read them. It's so dim. It's an interesting debate that pretty much every museum has in terms of their objects. Um, there are issues with light levels. 
Um, I mean, I'm, I'm not qualified to answer this, really. I mean, probably my, my colleague is uh, at the back. I mean, there are different arguments for different museums. Certainly, with, with Greenwich, we have to respect the, the material that the model is made from or the object is made from. Um, there are constrictions on the cases in terms of the lighting used. Um, some of them are fairly fixed in that way. Uh, and also the materials that the, the labels are made from as well. It, it's not an easy thing to answer. We do our best to try and light them in such a way. In, in the case in the gallery here, we've, we've actually got the lights that highlight certain features on the model, you know, pertinent features on the model. Uh, and in, since the gallery was open, there have been a few uh, moves around where you know, the lighting in some cases is fixed and, and doesn't quite follow the model in some ways. But, I mean, is that fair to say, Sherry, in some ways? Jerry's our conservator here at the... Uh, wait, wait, sorry, wait. the conservator at the AGO. No, I was just saying that Simon's answer was accurate. We're doing our best to revisit the lighting at this time, but there are constraints with some of the materials in that they are light-sensitive. So we're trying to balance that with the needs of our visitors, and we are, we are in the middle of doing this. It's, it's not an easy thing to... We, we've grappled with it for years. I mean... Years ago, when, we, when you were going to a museum, certainly at Greenwich, I mean, it was just one light level and everything was lit. But what we didn't realise at the time was that it was actually damaging the, the artefacts, especially textiles and paper, uh, you know, UV, that sort of thing. And, and you've got to bear in mind, some of these models that were rigged, they're rigged with silk as well, which again is, is, is very UV anti. So it's a very difficult balance to... I, I know exactly where you're coming from because many is the time I've been in a, a museum where I'm looking at a model and I bang my head on the glass or you know, trying to get a closer look, and, and the lighting isn't always best play, so it's, it's a, a very difficult thing to, to deal with. I'm a curator at the AGO and who works with the collection, and to mitigate that, we've, you know, we allow uh, flashlights, so it's not the answer, yeah. but it is something that you can do to have a more intimate uh, experience in the galleries for the time being. So. And I'm all for intimate experiences with models. Yeah. So. Ship models, I should say, yeah. We should probably try and have some flashlights right there in the gallery for people to borrow. Yes. I think there was a question here. Oh, there's plenty. That's good. Thanks. I have a couple of questions. One is, did every warship in the Royal Navy have a model built before it? And the other question is, um, you may know it's the bicentennial of the War of 1812 here, and I wondered if, you're, if you are aware of any ship models for any of the warships that were built on the Great Lakes? In answer to your first question, no. Not a, a model wasn't built, as far as we know, because they haven't survived. A model was not built of every ship. Now, the reasons being is that there's no reference to them in the archives anywhere, models. They're very, very rarely mentioned. Secondly, models were made as proposals, so they weren't named models in some cases. And some models were made after. Models were made of classes of warships. Now, one has to bear in mind, certainly in the 17th and 18th century, there would be 20 or 30 ships of a particular class. So to make a model of every, every ship was just uneconomical. They didn't have the time or the money. And they didn't need to, really. It's really odd that they didn't consider these as, as important objects. They were a working tool in some cases. What they did do in large numbers were make what they called block models. And I, I should have brought an image with me where it was, it was a simple full-hull model carved in a solid piece of wood uh, with the details of the gun deck and the decoration just painted on. And they could, they could actually make these models in about three to four weeks. And there are references to those uh, when they sent the order to the shipwright saying, please send me 
a, a copy of your draft and solid, i.e. a block model, uh, and that would travel easily on a, on a, a horse and carriage or by sea, whereas a, a rig model like this, a plank on frame, was incredibly delicate and, and wouldn't travel. So no, they didn't make models of every, of, certainly in the 17th, 18th and 19th century, no. As you come into the late 19th, early 20th century, probably more, but still not a model of every class of ship. It's just, it was just, there were just too many. In terms of the War of 1812, yes, we're aware of that, um, and there are models. Uh, we've got a half model, or half models of the uh, Shannon, Chesapeake, uh, that were in the actions. Um, we don't have any, we don't have any models of, 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 of ships that were on the, um, the Great Lakes. Um, and, and some of our models were made retrospectively to tell the story of the War of 1812. I'm sure there are models, I think that there might be one at the, uh, the, uh, in the Annapolis collection, but there are ways of finding out, certainly. So, I mean, more than happy if you pop me an email, I'll, I'll have a look for you. I was just, uh, just wondering how many hours or weeks would go into making a model like the one we see. Yeah, uh, interesting point. Again, because there's no documentation, Although, having said that, um, this particular one, I'm hoping to find out, you know, in terms of ours, because as with the Bristol and the Jules Stockwell story, we knew we can start putting into place when they were there, when they worked, when the ship was designed. We know that from the progress books, so we, we know when the, the ship was put onto the stocks, as it were. And I think based on the Bristol, they would take probably a couple of years uh, to, to make. They were built by a, a group of individuals. They all had their own skills. There was a carver, a metal worker, a sh a, probably an assistant shipwright who did the construction. And there's even the thought that they, they, they were apprentices, trained, it was an apprentice piece to work up to the full-size vessel. So it was done by a sort of uh, a cooperative, as it were. But again, there's no hard mention to it in the archives, which is really odd, because it would have taken time and money to do this. And the, and the Navy, since Peeps turned up, were absolutely... You know, adamant about the, the accounting of the money that was spent on materials and design and development of the Navy. So it's really odd. Um, I think it's just down to unlocking the way that the archives are, are, that, that have survived uh, are, are spoken, how they're written, and understanding the language and, and the systems of it. And we've got an insight into that with the Stockwell story, and we're hoping to find out more with the Bologna story. So watch this space. I might have some more information for you. Hi, thank you. Um, I, in my travels, I've come across two churches, um, one in Quebec City and one north of Barcelona, both yep. of close to the ocean or seas, mm -hmm. that have significant um, ship uh, models yeah. like this that are dedicated to mariners that lost their lives. The one in Quebec City is quite significant. Do you know that one? No, I don't. Oh, I mean, it's a beautiful little church. It's at least 250 years old and has an immaculate collection of models that are hung from the ceiling. Really? So I think that would be a wonderful place to at least do some research on some of the models and the stories around them. Yeah. And the other one was in a small church north of Barcelona, right by the sea. Yeah. Again, same idea, maritime collection, mm -hmm. you know, probably a, a parish that had a yeah. large parish comprised of mariners. Right. So I just found that very curious, and I didn't know if you'd had that ex history it's, Well, exposure. Um, we're lucky enough to have a, what we call a votive model. Uh, in the collection at Greenwich. It's a Dutch, Dutch votive model of mid-17th century, which was hung for many, many years at the museum, as it would have been in a church. And I am aware of votive models, certainly in, in Holland, uh, in Spain. There's the famous Mataro cog, which is probably the earliest 
scale model in existence still. Uh, it's, it's fire damage. There was obviously a, a fire at some point in the church, and it's now in the, uh, I think it's in the Rijksmuseum in, in, in Holland. It's either the Rijksmuseum or, or the Prince Hendrik in Rotterdam. And they've got this wonderful large-scale model of, a, of the Hanseatic cog on display there. So I'm aware, but I wasn't aware of the, of the collection in, in Quebec, and I'm very interested in that because obviously they're very popular in Scandinavia as well. Uh, and in the UK, we've got um, um, ship models in churches. So. Well, given the fact that the British were there in the 1760s, I'm wondering if they might have to... May have carried it through, yeah. Oh, I'll have a look, I'll have a look at that. I'll, uh, I'd, I'd li like a reference on that. That's very interesting. Uh, just uh, in reference to the question about the War of 1812, I know you have the drawings for the St. Lawrence, uh -huh. the first rate. Uh, there is a contemporary model of that at, in the Kingston um, Maritime Museum. But I think it's made from the drawings oh, I see, right. that you have. Contemporary as in a modern... Modern, yes, yeah. sorry. I, we, we use the word contemporary in the UK as bit built at the same time as the ship. Oh, right. Oh, I was going to say, contemporary model. Wow. I've got a book of flights. Oh, OK. That's interesting to know. Because I'm always on the hunt for 17th and 18th century models. So if you ever come across any in your travels, well, there's a challenge for you because there aren't many out there now. I'd love to know about them. Thanks. I'm fascinated by the entire boat collection, model collection out there. And one um, area that really intrigues me greatly is the collection of slave ships uh -huh. that are um, presented in the collection outside, which seem to be attributed to um, prisoners who, by oh, right. memory, um, after the fact, as it were, mm -hmm. reconstructed their idea of what the boat was like that they were actually... Mm -hmm gallowed in, mm -hmm. if I can use that word. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about this a little bit? It's a, um, it's a very interesting story. We call them prisoner of war models. And basically, during the Napoleonic Wars, when we were having another little tiff with the French, uh, 1795 to 1815, a large uh, number of crew were captured and held in jails uh, or prisons on the mainland or afloat on hulks in the UK. Um, a fairly relaxed way of, of keeping prisoners. I mean, it, there was no pressure there. They were fairly open. Uh, uh, during the week, weekdays, they would have market days where the prisoners would make stuff out of materials and they would sell them to the local populace. And the, the, the prisoners were issued with a, a weekly ration of meat on the bone. So they had this natural resource of bone uh, to, to, to use. They could carve it. They could make all sorts of things like domino sets, uh, winders for wool, uh, pastry cutters, uh, and, and, and called ship models. Uh, you know, out of wood or bone. Uh, and these, they, they started off really small and crude, and then obviously as they traded up in terms of materials and tools, they would sell them to trade up and buy materials and tools, the models themselves became larger and, and more detailed. Now, the interesting thing about them, and you'll see this in the collection out there, is that when you look at these models, you'll notice the underwater shape of the hull is slightly askew because they never saw the underwater hull, uh, shape of the hull. They were afloat or whatever and the, sh the size and proportion of the mast. They're too tall, and the rake of the bowsprit at the bow was, was too steep. Again, they didn't work to scale plans. It was all from memory. But what you will find out is the layout of the deck and the furniture on the deck and the rigging is absolutely spot on because that was the area that they knew and they worked, and they could make that from memory. They're an amazing story. I mean, they're made, they, they used materials like horse hair, human hair, silk, they would use um, gold, which they would beat down to a foil and, and, and put on. The, you'll see them out there. on. If you look at one of the bone models with the rudder mountings, it's got gold foil on there. And it was all done to sort of show the models off, to sell them. They would even, 
and I'm sort of reaching the marketing people here, they would even put names of ships on that, had, that were famous from a battle, clearly that didn't repre weren't represented by the model. For instance, Aethmus Victory was quite a famous ship for us. And you find that name on two-deckers as well as three-deckers. Now, she was a three-decker, first-rate hundred gun. So to have this, the name Victory on the stern of a two-decker was sort of pushing it a bit, you know. But if it sold, it sold, you know, at the end of the day. And these models became so popular that the local population would come in and order models to be made. And we know this from um, contemporary references where the officers were billeted with families. They weren't billeted in the jails with the, the crew. They, were, they, they stayed with families. And they, so they had a fairly free reign as long as they didn't try and escape. And as far as they were concerned, it was an easy life. They didn't have to go and fight, you know. Uh, and, and the crew, they were pressed into the French Navy rather than the British Navy. And they, you know, they included craftsmen you know, who were good with their hands, they could work um, tools, that sort of thing, uh, watchmakers, cabinet makers, that sort of thing. So, that, you know, that the industry was there and they grouped together to make these wonderful objects and then just sell them to, to earn some pocket money. So they're an amazing story on, on themselves, you know. And because of that story and the material and the attraction of it, they fetch quite a bit of money at auction. You know, they're quite valuable, even though they're not accurate, you know, scale, accurate scale models in some cases. Sir, uh, I hadn't considered that, I guess you were talking about doing the CT scans. Is it to scale inside the ship where it can't be seen? It, it's all to scale, absolutely. I mean, there, there are instances where we've been inside models where the, 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 the gun trucks are still there with the cannon, and they're all to the same scale. You've got things like the ladderways. You've got bulkheads where the cabins were. Uh, in one model, um, we, we, we went in with an endoscope. In the stern cabin of the officer's cabin of about 1703, You've got these amazing paintings going all the way around the gallery. They're the size of a postage stamp. And you can then they're sort of sea serpents and sea witches and things like that. I mean, it's incredible. Uh, it's the sort of thing you wouldn't see. And, and many people, and as David was saying in the audience, who's a fellow model maker, you know, they say, why did they do this? And I, I, I just don't know the answer. But, you know, knowing model makers, it was, it was something that they wanted to do. And it was pride. I, mean, I know many model makers that put things inside of models that they know that they're never going to be seen unless you smash them to bits, which, you know, is, is probably not a good idea. But, <laughs> um, but no, the, the detail inside, things like the capstans, you know, the lower capstans, the gear capstans, the riding bits, all these technical uh, bits of equipment, they're all in there. Now, I suppose with the right light, you could actually see some of them, but you wouldn't get the view running down the gun deck or anything like that. So to have something like the, the endoscope and the CT scan available now is actually, you know, without physically damaging the model, because at the end of the day, if you haven't got this, um, these tools to hand, you're going to damage the model, and that's not a good idea. These are so fragile, they're put together with animal glue, which is very brittle, and you've only got to knock it slightly, and things start, you know, I mean, the models fall in on themselves anyway, you know, depending on how they've been treated. Um, so you've got to be, tread very carefully, but um, it's a great way of, of opening these real, you know, they're, t they're time capsules in some respects. And we've even had um, inquiries from <coughs> people making replicas, for instance, when they made the full-size sailing uh, replica of the Endeavour, Cook's Endeavour. Um, they came to me and for me to endoscope the model that we had of a bark and another model that showed the stove. They were, they were stuck on how the stove would have been mounted on the deck. Was it stone flagon um, floors or was it on a, on, a, on a tin tray, that sort of thing. So I went inside a model, or several models, and was able to prove for that date that they actually used stone flagons as well as a tin tray. So, you know, that, that's the sort of detail you find inside there, that, the, you know, the stoves are there, the, the, the boilers and everything. Absolutely incredible. 
and we're hoping that, you know, when we get the CT scanning underway and more time to photograph uh, the endoscopy, we'll put these images online. I mean, some of them are online now, and it's certainly worth a look. You know, they're just amazing. Sorry, I went on a bit there. It's a bit of a passion of mine. You mentioned earlier that the scale of ships changed, or roller models changed, yes. after the Second World yes. War. I'm wondering, for how long did the shipping industry persist in making models? Uh, well, that's, that's a very interesting question, because they still have them made today. We just acquired a model of a liquefied gas carrier three years ago. So they're still a very important part of, of, the, of, the, of you know, the shipping industry. They're a, they're, a, they're a sales tool for the shipbuilders, more, more like the shipbuilders. And, and again, a part of the deal of ordering a ship is that you'll get a model for your boardroom. So they're still being made today. I mean, arguably, the ships aren't as interesting because they're just box-shaped. All the fixtures and fittings are hidden in terms of you know, the maintenance, that side of thing. Um, so, you know, they're, 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 a bit more, they're a bit dull, but, you know, they, they still make models, um, which I find fascinating because in terms of design, they use CAD, computer-aided design, to actually design the ship, although they still use models, uh, to tow tank models, to pull them through the water to work out the hydrodynamics of the hull. So it, it's, it's amazing that, you know, there is other technology out there where they, that they could use, but they still, like architects, they still rely upon models, which, as far as I'm concerned, is great news because it keeps me in a job. <laughs> I want to ask you a question. What got you started with shipmates? Right, yes, I should have said, actually, I'm from a very young age. My father used to work for P&O, the shipping company. So um, I was exposed to ships and the River Thames and the, and the Port Tilbury from a very young age. And I was fortunate enough, to, uh, when I was five or six, to go away on cruises because my father worked for P&O. We were able to go cruising. So from an early age, I, I went on a, on a cruise ship with my family. So, you know, I just got hooked on things ships, really. Um, I left college, uh, and, and I'd always wanted to work in museums. During my school holidays, I'd work on, on archaeological excavations, digging up Saxon graves, that sort of thing, which I thought was fascinating. And a local job became available uh, in where I worked of a, uh, an archaeological excavation for a year. And then the job I'm in now was advertised as a sort of junior trainee grade. I applied for the job and said, I love ships and ship models. You know, I'm your man. And they said, yep, you signed in. And I've been there ever since. Wonderful. <laughs> so the good old apprenticeship. It, it, it is. It, it's, yes. it's not the academic route. It's the object route. And I've always argued that in museums, you've got to have this balance. You've got to have the academics as well as the object people. It's very, very important because you've got to have that connect connectivity with the objects. You're the conduit between people asking the questions and the objects. You're there to open up their secrets, and that's how I look. That's, that's my role, and I absolutely love it. I can tell. There's a microphone coming from there. I'm just wondering, uh, for a fan of the uh, Patrick O'Brien novels, oh, yeah. what would be the best museum to visit in the world? To visit the... Uh, what would be the best museum to visit to... Oh, well, there are a number. I mean, um, the Greenwich. Um, <coughs> I've got to say that because um, the colleague I work with, some of you may know, Brian Lavery is a very good friend of mine and a, a world-renowned maritime historian and co-author. We wrote a book on ship models. He corresponded for many, many years with Patrick O'Brien because at the time, Patrick considered him the authority on the sailing navy. So, of course, Patrick O'Brien spent a lot of time in the archives at Greenwich. Uh, the Naval Academy at Annapolis, they've got these wonderful collections of sailing navy models, the AGO, you've got a great collection here, 
You know, that, it absolutely speaks Patrick O'Brien there. You know, you've got a frigate model and, and that sort of thing. Uh, Science Museum in London has got a nice collection of models. I mean, you know, I could go on, really. There are, there are some good collections around that you can relate to Patrick O'Brien very, very well. <laughs> and he used models as well as a reference. You know, both authors used them. Marine artists, the Vanderveldts, they used models when they were doing their perspective uh, layouts for their lovely oil paintings and drawings. E.W. Cook, Turner. I mean, some of um, Turner's models survive. If you go to the Tate, there, are, there is a model there of, of, of one of the, 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 the Turner used to get his, his perspective done as well. So they're, they're everywhere models, you know. So it's, it's surprising when you suddenly get on, hooked onto these things that you suddenly realise they just keep popping up everywhere. Do we have any model makers in the audience? I, I am yes. spotting one, but I'm just wondering if there are any, any of the rest of you who... Ah, one over there. You're asking me a question. No, I'm asking we're the interested. audience no, generally. Are there any model makers in the audience? Yeah, we're trying to find the history of, of the model that my husband restored. Oh, right, OK. Is it a British uh, ship or a... Oh, right, OK. Well, I, I, I've, my email address is here, so send me an email. I'll see what I can do for you. Oh. <laughs> right, we'll just, we'll just scratch that from the record, will we, please? So, you, went to, you went to Greenwich and you never heard back. Right, okay, well, we need to write that one then. So, right, okay. When was that? Two years. Right, okay, we'll stop there That's then. worse than me, oh, you have Simon. A, you have a, um, a thing I attended in 1996. Oh, yes, the model symposium, yeah? Yes. Yeah. Oh, lovely. Oh, good. Well, send me an email. I mean, the great thing is now with email. Do you do email? No. Oh. <laughs> well, don't worry. If you give me your details, we'll, we'll, we'll certainly sort it out for you. That's nice. Do we have any more questions? He's flying back to London tomorrow. So, okay, there's one here and then one there. I was just wondering if the uh, passion for building the models was particularly British or European or if in Southeast Asia... There are large collections of That's perhaps Chinese ships. Right, you've actually hit on a very interesting point. I had a, I was giving a seminar a couple of weeks ago about our Chinese ship model collection, traditional uh, junk, sandpans, that sort of thing, and I was told by a Chinese colleague of mine that the, 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 the actual culture of a scale model of a ship is completely alien to them. They just don't do scale models. They do models in pottery and, and ceramic, but they don't build scale models in wood certainly going way back. Um, it's not until the late 19th and early 20th century that you start getting models made by carpenters as sort of keepsakes for the British Navy that were out there at the time. They bring them back as a sort of tourist model as well. Um, in terms of Asia, no. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a European thing. We've got a collection of, of models of Chinese and foreign craft that were made in the UK, but based upon notes and dimensions and stuff that were taken by naval officers in the British Navy in the mid-19th century. So we've got these stunning models, beautifully made, of Chinese vessels that the Chinese haven't got. And, of course, they're itching to get their hands on them to sort of do an exhibition, so we're really excited by that. But, no, the, the, the culture of, of scale models to the Chinese, you know, in the 19th century and the 18th century, unheard of. That's why and none of them... There's nothing in, in China, as far as I've been told. So... I find that fascinating, I really do, bearing in mind the, the culture and the dexterity of, of the, you know, the, like the Chinese and the Japanese, you know, they're, they're amazingly 
uh, uh, gifted in terms of craft work and that sort of thing, and the materials as well. One, two, three. <laughs> I'll stay as long as you like, but it's, that's not my call. Hi, this might be for the cur curators here as well. Yeah. Are, were there any models in the old uh, Maritime Museum, the one on the CNE grounds, and do you know what's happened to them? Who is next? Thank you. Uh, I would like to know by what means do you keep uh, wooden models uh, 300 years old, very fragile, fine, uh, put together with uh, animal glue from falling apart now? What do you do? What's, what, well, what techniques do you use? Yeah, I mean, we've got very, very high spec storage facilities in terms of light levels, temperature control, humidity. And the key, and, and Sherry will, is, is better qualified than I to speak about this, but the key to keeping a model in good condition is, is making sure that it's structurally sound and keeping the conditions stable. If you get conditions that are rising and falling quickly all the time, that's when the models start getting upset, particularly wooden ones, you know, in terms of humidity and temperature. If you can keep that, um, uh, those conditions relatively stable in plus or minus 10 either side of, of, of the line, you're, you're winning. Um, a great thing about these models is that the fact that they were made with these materials and the, the, they were so well made, it's like furniture, they're a testament to the, the craftsmanship that was employed, they've lasted this long. People have obviously treasured them and looked after them and within reason, if we can't do that now, we're, we're just losing, a, 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 a losing the battle. Uh, with the technology at our fingertips today, we should be able to do that easily and we, and we can, we've just moved our collection into a brand new store. Uh, they don't see the light of day, but they're in good, calm conditions and they're happy. Would you but, uh, use modern resins and stuff like that? It depends. To, uh, 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 no, I mean, uh, all our conservation work that's done, or preservation, conservation, there's an issue there, that's done on these models has to be reversible. And it's got to be in, uh, in, in partnership with the model itself. And where we can, we use um, materials that are um, equal to the original. Uh, that they're in, in company, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, yeah, anyway, so that they, you know, because if you start using uh, glues that are stronger than the originals, it, it will actually cause stresses elsewhere. It's like rigging. If you replace a piece of rigging that's stronger than the original rigging, it will actually cause a stress and, and cause more damage. So you've got to be very careful about how you repair and how you replace, if you replace. You know, there's a question to be said, do we need to repair that or restore that? Can we get that information from elsewhere? I mean, that's how we think now. There was a time when I first joined the museum where we would actually rig uh, an 18th century hull with 20th century rigging. We wouldn't do that now because we can get the information elsewhere and show it in a different way. So, you know, it's, 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 it's all museology. Uh, and, and, and Sherry, I mean, you can probably comment on, on the... Oh, fine, OK, right. <laughs> So, no, it's, you know, it's, it's, you've got, it's sympathetic. You've got to use materials that are sympathetic to the original as much as you can. Um, that's all I would say. Um, I have a sort of a silly question, uh, but I've been looking at this gorgeous model on the screen, and I am really dying to know what is in the drawer. Oh, oh right. Well, actually, the, 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 the handles on the side, well, yeah, that, the that's for handles. carrying the base. That's actually set in a, in a dry dock, but at the other end, the wall drops down 
and there's a little drawer at the end, and then a, a, a tray comes out with the extension of the slip line. And you let go of the ropes there, and the model would launch down the slip line. This was for the George III. They showed the, the ship launching. It would be set on a table, okay, in a nice case. You take the top off. Is that a fire alarm? No. Okay, right. I know I talk, but I mean, there's no need to set a fire on. <laughs> um, they were set on the table, they would take the top of the case off, they'd pull this drawer out, some legs would drop down to support the slip weight, and they would launch the, the, the model down the slip weight. Well, it was George III, you know, it's, it's, it's got to work. And that's all that remains of that model. We don't have the case top anymore, we don't have the table base, but we have another model which has got those components. And, we, and there was a time in the 19th century where they would launch these things down the slip weight for the public. I mean, we wouldn't do it now, but uh, so that's why you've got that mounted on a on a on a, on a box liner. But the handle's on the side of for carrying it and, and lifting it off the table. Ah, one more question. Maybe we we'll just take one more. Preservation versus conservation. Can cool. you can you say a little bit about that? Well, the definition of preservation and conservation. Uh, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, Sherry. Um, when you preserve something, you just stabilise it. Um, um, and, and to a certain extent, conservation as well. The, the line is drawn where you start adding uh, in terms of, of restoration and reconstruction. Uh, it, there are all sorts of arguments around this area. Um, you know, should you, shouldn't you? Uh, what are you doing to the object? Are you damaging it? Are you enhancing it? Um, are you, you know, prolonging its life? Um, it, it's a difficult thing to answer, really. Um, my, my rule of thumb is that you just stabilise and you preserve what is there uh, in terms of, you know, just trying to keep it um, structurally sound. If there's previous work that's been done and it's in keeping with the model and it's not too gaudy in any way, we will leave it there because that's all part of the object history. You don't clean a painting right the way back to the sketch and things like that. It's, it's, it's all part of the object history, and you can tease that out through the story. If there's something that's been added later which is clearly inaccurate and poorly done, there's probably an argument there to actually take it off. And it may be affecting the character and the, uh, the condition of the model as well in terms of the materials used. So it's a case-by-case -case basis as far as I'm concerned. I'm getting a nod from Sherry. So. I think at this point, if there are no more questions, we can let him go back to England. And <laughs> I'll be back. Although one thing I have said is we have paintings in the ship model galleries that we've borrowed from his museum, and I don't want them ever to go back. I love them. My, my mother's family were from Devon and were naval people. So I can look in that wonderful painting of the Plymouth Dockyard oh, yeah. and see where my great-grandfather, the street my great-grandfather lived on and where my grandparents were and where I learned to swim around the corner. So... Thank you so much for a wonderful talk. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to this Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. For additional recordings, as well as information on upcoming programming and events, please visit us online at ago.net slash talks.